We're going to continue our study in the book of 2 Peter. We're going to start in chapter 2, reading verses 1 through 10. 2 Peter, chapter 2, 1 through 10. Peter says, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will also be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of, them, because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their judgment from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. Verse 4, For if God did not spare the angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a preacher of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. And if he condemned the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to destruction by reducing them to ashes, having made them an example to all who would live ungodly lives thereafter, and if he rescued righteous Lot, oppressed by the sensual conduct of unprincipled men, verse 8, for by what he saw and heard, that righteous man while living among them felt his righteous soul tormented day after day by their lawless deeds. Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the, the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment. Verse 10, and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Lord, help us as we study. There are three things that Peter is addressing in the second part of this, this letter. He's talking about making sure you are careful about misguided teachers, instructors, how God mercifully judges, and what it means to be miraculously rescued. First of all, he continues with the theme about the place from which inspiration should come. In the last chapter, although, the writer never wrote in chapter and verse. Chapter and verse was added later so we could reference certain passages quicker. He just wrote in a letter. But at the end of chapter 1, we see he's talking about how all Scripture was inspired by God and that men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke on, on God's behalf and that these Scriptures were not ideas of men. Men may have penned them, but God inspired them. But then he says there were also false prophets and those false prophets had to be had to be there had to be somebody out there who was saying watch out for them they had to be quarantined because they would influence the direction of which the people of God were going and he said just like there were false prophets there there will be false teachers among you and they will secretly introduce destructive heresies now, a heresy is anything that undermines the basic tenets, orthodoxy, or, orthodoxy of the Christian faith. Dest uh, heresy is error, but not all error is heresy. You can be in error about how to best live. You can be in error about what needs to be done in your family life and not believe that certain scriptures should be applied to you, and it's wrong but it won't disqualify you from being a Christian you just aren't wise in the way you live and you're going the wrong way and you're going to suffer the consequences of your misdeeds if you continue but heresy 
is that which does not any longer allow you to be defined as an orthodox Christian. Your belief system has so been undermined that we can't define you as the Bible defines a Christian any longer. And that is very, very dangerous. It's not just that error is not dangerous. It, it's that heresy is really dangerous. And we need to, to stay away from that and we need to guard ourselves from hearing it. I don't use this platform to talk about people. There are a lot of folks out there who aren't teaching right. A lot of ministries that aren't going the right direction. But I've chosen not to make that a focal point here. I'd rather go ahead and just talk about the right way to live and then you can figure out what's wrong from there. I've been told now by three different authoritative sources that our federal government has some agents that are taught how to figure out what money is counterfeit and what is not. And it's either the CIA, the FBI, the Secret Service, or a combination of the above. And the way they are instructed is that they do not look at counterfeit bills to, t to determine what's counterfeit. They look at the real thing. They study the genuine article. And they study where the face is on the bill. They study the texture of the bill, the weight of the bill. They smell the bill. They study it so much so that when they see now a counterfeit bill, they immediately know this is not genuine. And my hope is to present to you regular right doctrine. Not just right doctrine, but right living. A sense of how a congregation should smell theologically. So that when you go into a foreign environment, you're able to very easily have your olfactory system offended by anything that's not right. You can sniff it. You can feel it. Say, ah, something not quite right here. Now, I'm not asking you to be trained to be a judge of every environment. That's weird. That you are constantly going into different places, licking your finger and putting it up to the wind to figure out whether these people are right all the time, judging everything, having your scorecards and your, your seats over what the preacher said. Don't do that. Don't do that. But we ought to be able to accurately, quickly, discern heresy it says that these people who produce heresy they go so far that they even deny the master who bought them talking about Jesus because things that are heretical are those which usually undermine the person of who Jesus is and there are things that we have to hold to in orthodoxy as Christians one that he was born of a virgin super important he can't just be another guy with the same nature as ours only. He's got to be God and he has to be man. Therefore, it can't be from a man and a woman on the planet. Or else he'd be born with the same sinful tendencies that we have and go that direction and not be allowed to do anything other because that is who we are. We were born of Adam and Eve. They were sinners. That makes us sinners. And so we have this tendency and we give into it regularly. Nobody has ever been perfect except Christ because he was born not a fully man. He was 100% man, yes, but he was 100% God. He was not a 50-50 composite. That kind of makes our brain go tilt. How can you be 200% of anything? How can that happen? Well, at that point, we understand something about what it means to worship because God is innately bigger and smarter and infinitely more wise and complicated than we are. And when we come to the point of plumbing the depths of our theology 
to the, to the bounds of our intellectual capacity. Our responsibility is not then to just give up and become cynical and say, well, that doesn't make any sense. Our responsibility at that point is to say, oh, this is where you are God and I am not. I worship. I worship. That does not mean we have to commit intellectual suicide in order to become really good believers. That simply means that God is bigger than us. And if you can fit all of your God in your brain, he ain't God. He's not. He's other than us. He gives us the privilege of understanding something about who he is. And for that, I am very grateful. And that information will help me in every area of my life. It's not just helping me in church. It helps me be a good dad. It helps me be, if you're a businessman, a better businessman. It helps you be a better wife, a better friend, a better employee. It helps you be a better everything. But it does not allow you the privilege of saying, I am so smart now that I've figured all of him out. He is bigger than us. He is wiser than us. He is infinite. We are finite. And we can only take so much of him because we are human and he is not. And so when we come to the point of paradox where things just seem to conflict and don't make any sense because it's a place where our brain just can't take it in, that's where we worship rather than becoming cynical. Heresy takes these pieces, these foundation stones of our orthodoxy and removes it. And then we begin to deny the master who, who bought us. Now, hear me. You don't have to deny all of him to deny him. To deny him means this. I can accept Jesus as a wonderful teacher, an excellent moral instructor, a man who seemed to live life with great quality. But this God thing I can't accept. Well, then you've denied him. You can't take part of him without taking all of him. You can't just take your Sharpie, your black magic marker, and mark out passages of the Bible you don't want about who Jesus is because you want to have this synchronistic style of worship that incorporates other religions. can't do that. You're in heresy. And heresy does not allow you to be defined as a legitimate believer. It's dangerous. You deny the master who bought you. And it leads you to a place where truth automatically becomes maligned. Because Jesus said, I am the way, John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So truth is not a concept only. It is a person. So when we don't accept all of who Jesus is, the way of truth, who he is, gets maligned. And the information that we need in order to understand who he is best takes us in a way that ought not be, we ought not be taken. And so we go down a road and wind up at a destination where we should not be. Truth gets twisted. There's a way that truth ought to lead us. And that way of truth is a, is a complete understanding of who he is as we understand it orthodox, through orthodoxy and historical faith. And we need to love truth on a regular basis. We need to prize truth. We need to get in this Bible. Here is your, your regular bread full of broken CD. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Read your Bible every day. Read your Bible. You need to get in this because the Word and Jesus are synonymous. You want to, under, you want to have a better relationship with Jesus? Have a better relationship with His Word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, John 1. And the Word was with God, John 1, 2. He was in the beginning with God. The Word these things that we find as print on page became flesh and dwelt among us, it says in verse 14. The word was given personality. You want to know about Jesus? 
Get in this Bible and read. You want to know about the way of truth? Read it so you can understand how to follow him who is the truth. Don't let it be maligned. Don't let it get twisted. And when people who teach these false things, they go in a certain direction, sooner or later, they wind up not loving people well. It's inevitable. Because if you don't love God right, you can't love people right. Now, because we have never experienced the kind of love from people that we ought to, we accept what we can get. And we usually give only what we want to. But the reality is our mediocrity, our sense of of living below the standard to which God has appointed us, doesn't allow us to strive higher. And hear me, when you love God the way you're supposed to, all of a sudden you begin to love people the way they're supposed to be loved. The best husband is an excellent Christian. The best employee is an excellent Christian. The best everything is an excellent Christian because Christians understand something about giving their lives away, about showing up early and staying late, about stewardship and not calling anything their own, but being willing to give stuff away because it's not theirs, it's God's. They are selfless. Good Christians make great everything else's. Now, that doesn't mean if you're a good Christian, you're going to make a good what you're not competent at. When my plumbing's broken, I want a plumber. I don't care if he got a fish on his card. I don't care if he shouts hallelujah when he comes to my house. I want a plumber. I'm not looking for somebody to pray. I want somebody with a wrench and, 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 and a little bit more than that stuff. You got to pour it out of the drain and hope it just go away. I want you to fix my pipes. So whatever you are competent in. Now, if you are an excellent plumber... And, and, and you got God with you and you working with Jesus and shoot, you coming into my house and now you see a plumbing problem, you don't know how to fix it. You pray. God, where is this? Where is this stop? Well, what's the problem? I can't figure this thing out. All of a sudden, the Holy Spirit's fixed to you. That's the kind of plumber I want. You with me? It says the way of truth will be maligned and they will exploit the sheep. They will exploit you with false words. When you go down this direction, if you're a false teacher, you ultimately begin to use people for your own gain. You fleece the sheep. And boy, we want to stay away from that. I mean, we as a people, as a staff, we work really hard at making sure we are working with integrity at all times with you. We want to present Jesus the best way we know how to you. We're not perfect. We make mistakes. And like doctors, when they make a mistake, they make it on people. So we make it on people when we make mistakes. And we do what we can to apologize and commit ourselves to never do whatever we did that hurt ever again. But we work, we work really hard at serving you. It's not about us. Please hear me. It is not about us. It is not the Brett Fuller Show. If I die in ignominy, happy will I be. I never want to appear on anybody's blog. I'm not interested in having 15,000 followers on Twitter. I'm not trying to figure out how to get my face in the paper. I happen to be chaplain of the Redskins and I never do an interview because I don't want anybody to know. It's all about you. I want Grace Covenant to be great. I want the church for which Jesus Christ died to be great. 
And if you all do what you're supposed to do, if we become the people we're supposed to be and help see this city one, and nobody knows my name, happy will I be. It's all about you. 2 Corinthians 1.12, Paul said this, and we've got this on our wall in our staff meeting office. He said, for our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness, in godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves towards you. That's our passion. We want to conduct ourselves like that. So I hope we reach our goals. And then lastly, he said, the people who don't live like this and don't teach with integrity and honesty and have heresy as a part of their philosophy of life and ministry, he said they, their destruction, it's right around the corner. Their judgment is not idle and their destruction does not sleep. Even though they're doing it, even though they're working wrong, it's, it's bad to do bad. It's bad to do bad. But it's bad to do bad and have people follow you bad. That's really doubly bad. If you're going to do bad, do it all by yourself. Don't teach somebody else to do bad along with your bad. Because then God, you not only get God's attention when you're doing bad. I mean, he follows you up with kindness and mercy, asking you, begging you to repent. But when you start teaching people to do bad, he now follows you up with something other. There's something other. Because he's not... Jesus thought so much. He thought so much of people who were instructing folks to do bad. He said it like this. Anyone who teaches and leads one of my little ones to stumble, it would be better if he were not born. He would be better off if a millstone were tied around his neck and it were thrown into the sea. That's how bad it is. That's how he looks at it. And so he says, now there were people who blew this in the Old Testament and destruction came upon them. I did not allow them to continue. And please don't think that simply because destruction is not coming upon the people who are teaching destructive things now, it's not waiting. I'm just, and, and this leads me to my next point, God is merciful with everybody. He's even merciful with heretical teachers. Say amen. Amen. Because you always want him to be not merciful to the people or things that you think he needs to judge. But you definitely want him to be merciful with you. And we want to be the definers, the determiners of who God judges and when and how. Reality is, we, we like it like that. But God is merciful. And when he is merciful, it usually looks like they're getting away with something. Because you never think you're getting away with something. You think you're experiencing God's mercy. But the people who you've offended always think you're getting away with something. And we like to put the worst conduct in our minds that people can do upon other people who have done it to us. It's never us that we point the arrows to. But remember, every time you're asking God to judge somebody for what they did to you, usually you wind up on the other side of somebody else asking God to judge you for what you did to them. And what you meet out will be measured back to you, Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 6. So it's important for us to extend mercy so that mercy will be extended back to us. God is merciful. And he said even though he's merciful in allowing these wrong teachers to teach wrong, only that he might teach them how not to teach wrong. He's trying to get their attention. 
he's trying to help them understand, stop, 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 stop. And but that at some point, if they continue on and they don't listen to him, he's going to pull the plug. He said, done. I just can't deal with it no more. And so their destruction is not asleep. It's right around the corner if they don't stop. Which leads me to my next point. The first point was misguided teachers. Second point is he's merciful even in his judgment. I know that sounds antithetical. How can you be merciful and be judging at the same time? <laughs> God's the master at it. And he gives four examples. One, he gives the, the example of the angels. He gives the example of the ancient world. He gives the example of Noah. And then he gives an example of just, just generally the unrighteous. And let's talk about the angels. Now, in order to, to understand a little bit about this, and nobody understands all of it because we weren't there and the Bible doesn't have a whole lot to say about it. But there was, there was an existence before the world. God has always been. But in his world, there were angels created in this reality that was his without the world. The world as we know it has been around for, I guess, a fairly short period of time. I don't know what that is, but compared to eternity, it's short because eternity is both back and forward. It's just not going one direction. So before there was a world, there seems to have been this, this existence of God and angels. And the angels did whatever bidding God needed done. And we don't know exactly all that that, that was. But we do know Exodus, excuse me, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, and Revelation 12. Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14, Revelation 12. These three passages and more, but these are the primary, help, help us to shape our idea about what happened and how demons came into being. In this part of creation, we see that there were angelic beings and we believe that there were three primary angels. And we now call them archangels. It was Lucifer, Michael, and Gabriel. Gabriel was over what we now know became messianic proclamation and that he was the guy who came and told Elizabeth that she was going to have a son and the son was going to be the forerunner for Christ prepare the way and that was John the Baptist Gabriel then came to Mary and said you're going to have a boy and that was Jesus Michael happened to have been over war which may not have existed long before but did exist as a result of what happened when Lucifer blew it and so he had to battle things. And I'm not quite sure what that looks like. But this is, this is sketchy. And Hebraic theologians as well as Christian theologians believe the same kind of thing. And then there's Lucifer. And Lucifer happened to be, we believe, in charge of, of praise. And that praise was supposed to be directed through him to God. That he was to amalgamate, get it all together, combine it, and then give it to God. Well, at one point he decided, I'm not going to give it to God. I want it. I want to be God. And as a result of his pride and arrogance, uh, he fell. And there were a third of the angelic beings, it says in Revelation. And although Revelation speaks of future things, sometimes it goes in the past to define what the future should look like and give us some kind of reference point. And then Revelation speaks about one third of the angelic beings fell. And then those, we believe, became demons without the opportunity to repent. Now, how does this... How does this relate to uh, uh, mercy and judgment? Well, when you think about it, um, angelic beings had the opportunity and privilege to observe the Father 
in all of his glory every day. We, we never get to see him except through a glass dimly, if you will. We have to work really hard to see him in our own lives, in our circumstances. Most of us, and I dare say none of us, have seen a real picture of who he is. If you did, you're not on the planet. Moses asked for that, and God said, if you see me, you got to go. So that's not a good idea right now. I need you to be on the planet. I need you to do me some work. So you can't see him and live. But the angels got to. Flesh and blood can't, can't stand in his presence like that. But the angels saw him every day in all of his glory, in all of his goodness. They saw him. How do you see the best that God has? How do you receive it every day and then walk away? And vie for his position. And then on top of that, you think, well, why didn't he give them a chance to repent? With what would he lure them? How would he woo them? There's nothing else. When you see him in all of his glory, what else does he have to help you understand that you need to change? You rejected the best he had. This is one of the reasons why the, the, the idea of, of blasphemy, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is an unfor, unforgivable sin. Now, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is that which rejects vehemently, not emotionally. We're not talking about one day where you just shake your fist at God. I'm tired of this. I can't live like this no more. I can't take it no more. If that's the case, none of y'all would be here. (laughs) We'd all be messed up. We've all had our emotional moments where we just kind of went off and then had to repent later. That's not what this is talking about. Blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is rejecting the Father, rejecting the Son, both of which are forgivable. Both of which are forgivable. And saying, I reject the presence of the Holy Spirit. I no longer want him in my life. I don't want any redemptive benefit that he has to provide. Living like it and entrenching yourself in that point. I've been in ministry 30 years and I've only seen maybe one guy do this. One. And even then, I am doing all that I can for the next three years afterwards to try to reach out to him. But maybe one. Maybe one. It doesn't happen very often at all. But when it does happen, it is unforgivable. And why? Because the only way we can get right is if he woos us to be right. What's he got left to woo us? We've rejected his best. So you live with it. And you die with it. Here we've got mercy being extended beforehand in that they had a perfect view and then rejected. We believe then free will was taken away from both sides, both the demonic and the two-thirds of the angels that were left, and now we've got two sides are, that are permanently entrenched in their position. But let's talk about mercy with respect to the ancient world. It's said that, that Noah was, was there, and God knew he was going to have to destroy the ancient world because it was bad. Now let me, let, let me give you some, some context for how bad it was. Our world is bad. We got some nutty stuff going on. It's horrible. But it wasn't like the world then. It said that everybody only thought about evil continually. Now, I would dare say that if you're coming to church, you're probably not thinking about how bad you can be. That's a good point to confirm. (laughs) Confirm, confirm, confirm. You're probably not thinking about how bad. You're trying to think, God, can you help me? I want to get a little better. 
Okay, can you help me today? I need, I need something from you today. So you're trying to get a little better. People in this era thought about evil continually. That's all they thought about. How to steal their neighbor's wife. How to take their donkey. How to take their house. How to kill them. So bad was it that it says in Genesis 6 that violence, hear me, filled the earth. It wasn't just you had an incident every once in a while. Violence filled the earth. Folk were killing one another every day, committing acts of horrific pain upon each other. Just terrible. And God said, I've only got eight people left that are right. Noah, his three sons, and all their wives. Eight people in all. He said, I want you to build me a boat, and, and, and I'm, I'm going to bring a flood on the earth, and I'm going to start over with you. Now, it says that when Noah had his, his three sons, Ham, Shem, and Japheth, that those three were, had, were finished. He finished having those three sons at 500 years of age. When the flood came, he was 600 years old. So between the time God said, build me a boat, which was at 500, and the time the flood came, it was 100 years. Now, this was a big boat. It was an ocean liner. It was 450 feet long. Football field and a half. Big boat. And you only had four people really working. I, I don't know how much the wives did, but the men were lifting and hauling and doing it. So let's say maybe eight, but the ones who could really work, you know, with the power and strength to pull it up, four, doing all the hard manual labor. And then you're working with your, your children. I mean, let's face it. I, I love my kids. Love them. But it's going to take us twice as long. It's going to take us twice as long. So he, was, he had some issues. Big boat, maybe not as much help as he wanted. 100 years. But what was he doing other than wielding a hammer every day? Peter gives us some insight. Noah, a preacher of righteousness. Hey, guys, listen. I'm building this boat. And y'all can get in if you just repent. All you got to do is repent. Just, just stop doing what you're doing. This boat, it, it, it's not just for animals. It's for, come on. There's a flood coming. There's a flood coming. I'm telling you, it's going to be bad. It's going to be bad. And he was building this boat 100 miles from the nearest water that could contain it. You couldn't put a 450-foot, 75-foot-wide boat on a river. You needed an ocean. You needed a body of water, a sea. And he was 100 miles from the nearest water, so everybody walk, walk by and say, what are you doing? You're an idiot. You're a fool. There's no water here. How are you going to get this thing to water? And no one would say, the water's coming to it. Yeah, the water's coming to it. Yeah. And, and by the way, you need to get in it. He preached for 100 years. God said, I want to destroy the earth. And for 100 years, he mercifully gave people an opportunity to be saved. And nobody listened. Even in his judgment, there is mercy. And then you got Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, Sodom and Gomorrah are infamous. And they are infamous because we have defined the kind of destruction that was imposed upon them as being deserving because they were sexually immoral. And we've even named some crimes after the city monikered them after the names of the city but I, I want I want to help us all today as a church and I'm going to venture into some waters that are very dangerous 
and I realize I'll be castigated for it. I'll be talked bad about. I got it. But that's where I live. God did not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah for homosexuality. If you look in Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 through 51, God was talking to Israel and Judah, both together for the most part, because Judah was the only one left. Israel had been dispersed, but he was talking to the people called Israel. And he said, this is why I took out your sister Sodom. And referring to their sister Sodom, he was referring to the fact that Israel was responding just like Sodom and Gomorrah. And so he called them relatives. He said, this is why I took out your sister Sodom. Because she was arrogant. She had an abundance of food and was careless in her distribution. Had no care for other people and had no regard for the poor. That's why I took her out. In her haughtiness and in her abominable actions, I took her out for that. Now, I don't know how in the world we as Christians miss that point. Because I know a lot of folk, a lot of cities, a lot of communities that fit in that category. That's why he took Sodom out. And this is why Jesus could say, Sodom and Gomorrah will stand in judgment over you, Chorazin. Over you, Bethsaida. They'll judge you because of what you could have had and did not. Having said that, there's no question that Peter refers to the, the overt sensuality that these men had that pressed on Lot's morality. Now, Lot happened to be the nephew of Abraham. And Lot left Abraham. And the, the Bible here calls Lot righteous. But in this case, his righteousness was relative. Because Lot had issues. Lot was in disagreement with his uncle about property. Lot wanted his sheep to get more to eat than Abram's sheep. Lot wanted his donkeys to get more to eat than Abraham's sheep, Abraham's donkeys. He was trying to get all he could get and keep all he got. And he chose the city that everybody knew should not be chosen. He went to the place that nobody else wanted to live in. The people of Sodom and Gomorrah, because of their inhospitality, their arrogance, and their lack of compassion, were seen to be the most vile people on the earth. And Lot chose to go live down there. Now, even in the midst of Lot's poor choice, look at what God was doing. He was sending somebody who was at least more righteous than the people who lived there, saying, you can live like this. You can live like this. You can live righteous. You can do it. You can do it. And all they tried to do is persuade him to live like them. To which God said, okay, it's over. It's over. Now, if I can, I need to talk about the issue with respect to how we have assigned the, the character and the conduct of Sodom and what it means to our community today in terms of our disposition toward homosexuality. I'm a pastor who believes in my Bible, and I love people dearly. And there's nothing about my Bible that says that God created people to be homosexual. Nothing. God, when he thought about mankind, made a man for a woman and a woman for a man. That's what he thought about when he thought about mankind. Yet there are people who believe, I was born this way. I got it. But there's a, there's a lot of stuff I was born with that I can't do. 
There are a lot of things I was predisposed to be inclined to do that I should not do. My daddy, as much as I love him, was, a, was an alcoholic. wanted to be just like him. I wanted, he was a great athlete. He was all that. and successful, but he was an alcoholic. And so I don't drink. Now, most of my friends do. Most of my pastor friends do. I go out to dinner with my pastor friends. They have wine. I don't. If you saw me with a mixed drink over sweet water, somebody else said, oh, pastor. <laughs> but that doesn't have, my lack of, my abstinence doesn't have anything to do with my theology. It has to do with my, my perception to the community, how I am perceived. And it's important for me to maintain my witness and so you don't have to jump over stuff to understand that I'm integral. So that's important. Number two, I know from which I came. I, I got it. My daddy was this way. It's on the inside of me. And I don't want to give any leeway to the weakness that is down there that I might go a direction I'm already leaning in. And so I don't even, I don't do it. I don't do it on my 25th anniversary, which I just had with my wife. We don't drink. We have sparkling cider, apple cider. That's what we do. I'm pitiful. I know. I know. I got it. But I know what's on the inside of me. My mother was a diabetic. There's, some, there's certain things that I have to do to make sure I don't gain 100 pounds. Because I know what will happen to me. And so I live in su- 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 such a way as to be deferring to my genetic makeup. Cautious about it. And I'm convinced that there are things that are passed down from one generation to another. As a result of Adam's flaws. That make people not as normal as they ought to be not as intended as God thought about when he thought about his humanity and thereby make people think I was born this way and then there are environmental concerns that happen at such an early age that imprinting begins to occur in the life of the person to such a degree that they actually believe this is the way I was created to be but it doesn't mean that none of that can't change I've seen people who have adopted this lifestyle and said I was born this way in the 70s and 80s, people had to come to the place of understanding. Not only am I going to come out of the closet, but then they said, I was born this way. They came to that conclusion. I've always thought this way. And I have seen people who said that freed. Freed. Married, kids, don't even lean that way anymore. I've seen it happen. And develop a new identity about who God called them to be. And I'm not going to argue to death with people who believe they actually are born that way. I'll just tell them, well, you've got to be born again. That's why God gave this provision. Now, having said that, the church is sick. We're bigoted with respect to certain behaviors. We have bad attitudes on certain sins. Intolerant of others. Sick. Now, if you lie, you're not going to jail. You knock off a 7-Eleven, you're going to jail. <laughs> different consequences on the planet for different sins. I got that, yes. But before God, sin is sin. It's not necessarily just the action. It's the one you offended who made the law. This is what James says. It's not so much, I didn't steal, I didn't lie. Or I did steal and I did lie. It's that you broke the heart of the one who made the command. That's the issue. 
And so Adam and Eve didn't murder nobody. They just ate a piece of fruit. That's all they did. Yet God said, the day you eat of that tree, you will die. The issue was you disobeyed me. You've offended me. So before him, all sin is exactly the same. The adulterer is just as bad as a person who believes that they can commit homosexuality and it's fine. Just as messed up. And we as a people need to be merciful and kind and understand that people can be saved, born again, love God, and still struggle. Now, only half of you are saying amen because the other half is saying, what's, what's struggle mean, Pastor? Define struggle now. Define struggle. Struggle like you struggle with whatever sin you got. Now, if somebody wants to live wanton, they want to give themselves to any sin. They want to leave their family, shack up with somebody else. They want to continue to embezzle funds from company because they believe it's their right. They want to go out there and just drink themselves to death and say, I can get away with this because I'm a Christian. You got some issues. And we cannot endorse any conduct like that. All sin that is wanton, blatant, and does not look to repent, not look for victory, and believes that they can get away with it just by asking for forgiveness, you got issues, and those issues cannot be tolerated in the church. We will not let somebody just continue to intentionally defy God's command and call themselves a believer in this house. That does not mean we don't love them. We may have to release them from our fellowship. They can't take communion anymore. This is what excommunication is. But then our pastors and our people will go after them saying, please, we love you, repent. Don't do this anymore. We will chase after them like lost sheep. That's how much we care. But there has to be a standard of integrity in the house. You want to live rebellious intentionally, not here. Because you become the reason that everybody says God is not relevant. I've gone over, I don't have time, and I've probably offended many more of you than I wanted to today. But I care. And we have to be a people that reach out with compassion and empathy and not give in to the ideas that happen to be popular and go back to the mores of Scripture and the moorings of Scripture and stand on them and find the compassion and mercy that says, I believe this about you and I think you can be free. Let's pray.